Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, a roundtable-style spin-off from Adventure Rider Radio that we do each month about motorcycle travel. And on this episode, it's a full house. The Rixes are back from their trip to the Isle of Man. Grant Johnson is in Thailand. Sam Manicom has just returned from a trip to Spain. And Graham Field is chomping at the bit to tell you what he thinks about waving to other motorcyclists. All this and more coming up on today's episode. But before we start, I want to give a shout-out to a couple of people that helped this show out incredibly the past month with support of $50 or more. And that's Michael Goodwin and John Masiewski. I hope I have that right, John. If I don't, let me know. Michael and John, thank you very much. If you'd like to hear your name here, drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com and click on the support button. And now here we go, ARR Raw for October 2018. Yep, yep, all plugged in. <laughs> oh. Sorry about that. Just got to put my legs on. Okay, ready? Are you scraping chairing, Mr. Fields? Yeah, I've done it. Yeah, before we start recording, professional, darling. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> From the Canoe West Media Studio, with whales passing outside, literally, they're splashing around it there, and I'm serious about that, on the shores of Vancouver Island, British Columbia, Canada, it is October 2018, and welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind, completely unscripted, raw, and personal. My name is Jim Martin, and today at the virtual roundtable afforded through the magic of the internet, we have a full house. We have all of us here. My regular Overland co-host, Shirley Hardy Ricks, Brian Ricks, Grant Johnson, Sam Manicom, and of course, Graham Field. I'm going to start with the, the Rickses. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to be home and nice to be back with you people too. Yeah. Hi, guys. I think last time we were in the air. I thought about trying to Skype you in the air, but... Uh, I don't think it would have worked too well. I think the um, Pilots. the pilot might have been a little bit upset. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got a lot to, to talk about with you guys because you've just finished this big trip, but we're going to come back to that. We also have Grant Johnson, who I have no idea where you are, Grant. Do you? <laughs> uh, I think so. I'm in Ubud, which is in Bali, Indonesia. Just mm. finished the HU Indonesia event, which went was a good fun event on the main island of Java in a little tiny, tiny, tiny town called Rancho Buaya. So we had a good time with that. So you're sitting in like a grass hut right now with your feet up? Uh, I'm stretched out, relaxed, lying on the bed, looking out the window of the hotel I'm currently in, Artini Resort, and the, uh, the view into the garden is beautiful, the koi in the, in the pond and local statuary. It's very, very nice. I wish I could show you a picture. D- did I see online that... Um Horizons Unlimited Indonesia is on the be- done on the beach. Well, it's right next door to the beach. Yes. Oh, fantastic! If you, go, if I mean, you stand that... in the presenting room, just step out the door, and there's a bunch of rice paddies and uh, ocean surf. Gorgeous, absolutely spectacular venue. And of course, as we've already heard, we have Sam Manicom. Sam, I, I don't know where you are either. <laughs> Hello to everybody. Um, I am back in the UK. We have, um, Birgit and I have just spent a month or just under a month riding in northern Spain and Portugal. Absolutely fantastic time. You know, it was one of those trips that you dream about, you plan for, and you go on and you're absolutely gobsmacked that everything works out so much better than you even dreamt it could. So um, we are back and we are buzzing. So what you're saying is it wasn't uh, any sort of adventure. No, not at all. Um, I mean, the only adventure was dealing with the appalling weather. Um, We had sunshine every day. 
um, except for two glorious hours when we were um, at the world's end, that's Cape Finisterre, um, where we had fog for two hours. And I mean, that was just wonderful to have after all of that sunshine. And, you know, we just had dirt roads and twisties and little villages and stunning scenery. My, my eyeballs hurt after all of that. It was absolute misery. I'll never, ever, ever go to Portugal again. Um, actually, um, my bike's ready in five minutes. See you later. <laughs> yeah, I saw a lot of the photos. It looked like a, a pretty good time. And we also have Graham Field. Happy birthday, Graham. I, I understand that was, you know, we just missed your birthday or we were on your birthday? Uh, you and Kendra are still on my birthday. I certainly didn't miss my first day. <laughs> but, um, it's now seven, seven o'clock in the morning of the day after, so I'm all happy and bouncy, as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you sound it. So you're saying in Canada it's still your birthday. That's pretty incredible because I never thought of my birthday being an international thing. So your birthday celebrated around the world. Yes, apparently, yes. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> According to Facebook, yeah. <laughs> wow, I did prolong it once. Uh, how, did, how was I? I, prolonged, I was flying from India back to the UK, so I got an extra five and a half hours of my birthday. So, yeah, well, wow. although, to be honest, October is birthday month, and that's good enough for a reason to, to, uh, to celebrate. <laughs> so here in Australia, we were the first to celebrate it, mate. We were the day before. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you guys find that confusing in Australia? You're always the day before? No, we're just in front of you guys all the time. Someone's got to be first. I'll tell you what, it's the best place to to celebrate New Year's, isn't it? Oh, yes. Yes. The first taste of it in the world. Lovely. Well, happy birthday, Graham. I just, I, before, we, before we walk away from that, I just want to get, how old are you? Uh, you know, I'm 53. I'm not avoiding the subject. But it, you, you called me. We did an Adventure Rider Radio on my 50th. Yeah. And uh, you called me and did a show then. And it was, although it was it was really good to talk to you, I was in this tiny hotel room with a girl I was seeing at the time. And it felt so like Sid and Nancy the movie, Sid Vicious and Nancy Spongeon and their demise in the Chelsea Hotel in New York. And that was the <laughs> image I had in my head. <laughs> and the place, um, the fire alarm kept going off while we were recording and um, it just felt seedy and nasty and by comparison yesterday was classy and just a beautiful autumn day we went for a ride around some abandoned villages actually rode off-road two up never done that before and um and it was just the perfect weather beautiful day for a midweek birthday with a without a zero it's about as best as you can hope for <laughs> whose bike were you riding on the back of <laughs> I let my girlfriend take the Thruxton out and I sat on the back. <laughs> you mean the Thruxton is still running? It's still a good bike? Yeah, although the tire is worn out after five and a half thousand miles. That's powerful ah. bikes for you. <laughs> Any warranty on that? I don't think so. That warranty part. <laughs> I'm surprised you're not sponsor sponsored by a, a tire company, though. Wouldn't that be nice? Yes, if the Pirelli Diablo Corsa Rosso 2 wanted to give me an avatar, that would be lovely. But oh. no, and they're £135 each as well. Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> Graham, Graham, the simple solution is you just need to do more corners. 
Well, yeah, I guess so. It was um, I did quite a lot, but yeah, it's the I'm like, I'm like, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll spare you. I've two episodes run. I've been talking about Thruxton's. I'll shut up now. <laughs> <laughs> well, Shirley and Brian, your trip. I'm sort of curious about this. Well, I'm more than sort of curious about this. Obviously, it went well. You've made it back all right, and everybody's in in good spirits. Did you end up getting your motorcycle back? Oh, well, it's still crashing across the seas as we speak. Uh, it's, um, I think I'll get it back mid-November. So uh, I've had to ride uh, the Triumph or the uh, other BMWs so, that are in the shed. So um, I'm stuck with that. Oh. The big red still crashing across the seas. Sorry, sure. Have you not seen those videos on, on YouTube of the container ships, like all those containers sliding off into the ocean and stuff? Yeah. Does it make you worry? <laughs> It's insured. <laughs> Back in the early days with me and Birgit, um, we put the bikes onto um, a ferry. And um, I mean, it was only cross-channel ferry from um, Germany to the UK. North Sea, though, so it can be a bit bouncy. And we looked at the crew and they looked at us for milliseconds in comparison. And I went over to one of them and said, um, that we're about to sail. Um, what do we do about strapping the bikes down? And remember, I said, this is early days for us. And they said, well, why do you want to strap them down? What is the North Sea? Well, you've got insurance, haven't you? <laughs> well, 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 speaking of that, we've, we've had we friends that were uh, shipping or ferrying their KLRs back to England, and they actually fell over on one of those ferries into some guy's sports book. I think it was a shitty old thrustman or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> they had to pay for that. Oh, uh, no, the, the, the ferry company, company paid for, for it. it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. That ended Boy, that's unusual. Well, you know, here if you get something damaged on a ferry from something like that, I don't think they'll cover anything. I think you sort of you, you take everything in your own hands here. Oh, yeah, there'd be signs here on the ferries too saying, you know, at your risk. Yeah. No yeah. responsibility. By comparison, on the Isle of Man ferry, where they are very experienced at shipping bikes, they have such a wonderful system, as you know, Shirley and Brian, it's just, it's so efficient. And it's, it's you know, there I was with the new Thruxton all neurotic about it. And they've got padded bars that they lean against. Yeah. And uh, and the guys are so experienced at tying them down. Got to be the, the most, because I was a little worried riding up there. Oh, what's, this, what's the strapping down system going to be like? And they've got that down. They are very experienced at it. They are. They are. You don't wait. The only thing, I find it amazing how many bikes they can squeeze onto those Isle of Man ferries and trying to get off without actually standing on someone else's bike is always a bit interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you sort of got to be a bit of an acrobat to get on your bike and they really do squeeze them in like sardines. But they have, you remember, Graham, there was guys with beautiful old BSAs and Vincent HRDs and things like that, which are worth mega, mega dollars strapped into that uh, ferry. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, but, but, yeah, I was reassured at the way they do it. Probably of all the ferry crossings I've done, other than sometimes they let me strap them yourself, but having someone else do it and watching them, I thought, yeah, you know what you're doing, mate. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, they are so accomplished at it. So, Shirley, your, your trip that you guys just came back from, just sort of give us a quick rundown. Well, last time we spoke to you, we'd just been to the um, Sammy Miller Museum and we... If I remember correctly, we came in late and then left early because our friends were in the bar on their second gin and tonic and we felt a bit left out. <laughs> I do but remember. But since then, well, we, yeah, we, we spent two weeks on the Isle of Man. We had um, 
couple of meals with Graham, which was fun, and um, some pretty ordinary weather and some really amazingly good weather and some spectacular racing. It was uh, we one day we went to the bottom of Bray Hill, and um, this was after you'd left Graham. And a, a, a rider who we'd met said, when they come down Bray Hill, it's where they're actually relaxing the races. I couldn't watch. It was so scary as they came down at God knows what speed oh. and went so close to one curb and then across the corner to the other curb and then up the hill. I thought, oh, no, <laughs> it was just incredible to see. Yeah, a friend was saying uh, he's doing probably on the superbikes 140, 150 mile an hour coming down to that hill and uh, there's a spot where if you get it right, there's, there's no bumps, but that's only about oh, not even a metre wide, probably two feet wide. Uh, but if, you, if you're if you off that line, it's really bumpy and you can see the bikes that miss that uh, going sideways almost oh, up yeah, the hill. It was really scary. <laughs> and then after we left the Isle of Man, um, we lucked into the most amazing roads in Derby or Derbyshire because we were going there to look for um, family history stuff for me. And all the towns we had to go to, we just had to ride over these incredible roads through sort of um, the big towns would be Matlock and Matlock Bath around that area. And the roads were just incredible. And it's gorgeous, spent, isn't it? It is just beautiful. And we spent, I don't know if you know the town of Tissington. Yes. We spent a night in Tissington Hall in the... In the butler's retreat. Yeah, it's, it's, it's only um, got 60 rooms. Yeah, but they only right. let, a, let a couple out to the public. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> my three times great-grandfather worked there and we we contacted the current baronet, Sir Richard Fitzherbert, and um, he met us and showed us around the hall and it was just fabulous to see where my family worked and lived and we went to the church where they were all married and christened and buried from. What about the guy who was on the Titanic? Oh, and one of my relatives, a bit distant across the tree, drowned on the Titanic, and there's a memorial for him in the churchyard at Tissington. Wow. How do you prove this to people when you're phoning them up and telling them that your relatives used to work there? Oh, he was just a trusting person, I guess. And I have a letter that my... Um, Don't give Graham any ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if the room was rented out and we did pay for it, it's not like he said, come and stay at my place. Right. But he was very generous with his time and um, showed us uh, paintings of the um, the third baronet who was the man that my family worked for. And um, it's a beautiful little town, a village, really tiny, but uh, just gorgeous. So... It was a wonderful experience um, emotionally to be there, but the roads were good as a bonus. Yeah, the roads were great, and then we had to make our way back to Felixstowe to um, get the bike ready to ship home, and and that is a process going into Australia because it's got to be cleaned within an inch of its life. So, um, When you say cleaned, what are you talking about? You're talking about taking the side panels off and things? Yeah, we're talking about any dirt. Uh, uh, wiping the underside of the, the mud guards um, with a clean rag, make sure there's no dirt in there. You know, side panels, um, anywhere you can get to uh, dirt, you, you try and get rid of it because um, the Australian Quarantine Inspection Service will charge you an absolute fortune to fumigate it. So they'll fumigate now, will they? Because when I went in, um, 
if if they found any dirt on your bike at all, um, they would put the bike in quarantine for six weeks and you had to pay for it to be in quarantine, which was a ridiculous amount of money. I mean, I'm I'm all for um, the whole business of, of checking as thoroughly as that, but whew, if you get it wrong, it was very difficult. But fumigating, yeah. that's not Yeah, so yeah. I, 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 think it, I, I think it's about $600. Yeah. Uh, but wow, is it really? It. Yeah, well, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. It's, uh, it's certainly not a cheap exercise if you get it wrong. I think they had got going into Guatemala from from Mexico. They had this sort of uh, this guy who sprays it, and it's such a half-hearted effort. It's like, mate, you missed a bit. It's oh, yeah. There's some one country in Africa we went to. We actually had to ride through a little ditch that had detergent in it to wash the underside of the bike. I remember they got pulled up in places. We had to stand on a mat, and they sprayed our feet. Oh, yeah, that was I don't know heart and lung disease or something really attractive. Cows get. And um, going on to the Galapagos, uh, oh, yeah. they really, even though you're only taking suitcases, they really go through your luggage to make sure you're not bringing in anything into the um, area that could damage their environment. It's worth it. We, there's lots of things that you have that we don't because of our quarantine laws. The, the whole business about international travel is quite an issue, really, isn't it, if you think about it? And my mother... Um, told me a story at the weekend about um, a new critter um, that's just arrived in the UK. It's a cross between a, a squirrel and a rat. Um, and apparently this thing is absolutely vicious. And I, I, she could, she didn't know where it had come from, um, but obviously in a container of some sort. And um, apparently it's quite at home already in the UK. So we've now got something else um, chewing away. And apparently they like living indoors. They don't like the outsides. And if you've got wood in your house, they're rather partial to wood. So I think the government's given them a house to live in when they arrive. <laughs> so, Sam, you just came back from a trip. Yes. It's absolutely fantastic. I mean, Spain and Portugal. Um, Birgit and I have been to Spain a few times before. Um, and, you know, 10 years ago, Spain, in people, in British people's mind, was, well, it's Benidorm, isn't it? Which is sort of sky-rise holiday hotels and full English breakfasts and knotted handkerchiefs on the hat and um, the equivalent of a really weak beer that used to be around called Watney's Red Barrel. Red Barrel. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, those resorts, they haven't really changed. And if you've got a week off or two weeks off and you just want to crash out on the beach and read a book and um, drink too much at night time, then, yeah, why not? But Spain has so much more to offer. And Birgit and I were blown away by the ride in there. You've got absolutely everything from pure desert to snow-top mountains. Um, but I've been wanting to go to Portugal for a very long time. It's, I don't know, Portuguese would probably hate me for this, but it just feels less developed than um, so much of Spain does. Um, and I love that. Getting off the beaten track is just not difficult to do. And there were days where if we saw three or four vehicles in the whole day, um, that was a lot of traffic. And the twisties are just phenomenal. Some of them I said to Birgit over the intercom, um, you know, this has got to have been designed by um, a motorcyclist because the, the swoops in and out of the bends were just perfect. I tell you what, I woke myself up on one of them. I grounded one of my panniers as we were going around the corner. Oh, blimey, that made me jump. <laughs> you you were really being the racer there. I saw a photo you posted on Facebook with um, the the wear on your tires, or, or at least the scuffing on your tires. You were showing how far over you were got. You got. I assume that was then. 
That was, yeah, absolutely. I didn't tell Burgess at the, at the time because she would have waggled a finger in my direction. Um, <laughs> somebody summed it up right. The first, the first thing they they made a comment to the effect of, "Well, um, that probably made you jump, and then probably made you think, oh, I wonder what it'd be like to do that again.'" <laughs> it's supposed to make you think that I'm not a young guy anymore. I'm not a racer. I, I need to calm down. That's what it's supposed to do. Do you know, I have never ridden my bike fully loaded like that before, but I was trying some new tires and these tires just gave me a phenomenal amount of confidence. The grip going around those corners was absolutely amazing. So I guess I forgot that I'm a little bit older and not 25 anymore. I think we've got this in the right order, really. I mean, back when we were... 17, 18, my friends all used to ride around on RD250s and RD350s and would mess themselves up big time, sometimes terminally. And I was never into the fast bikes then. I used to ride old Harleys and trial bikes and uh, gentle bikes, which is why I'm still here, I think. And now I'm older. Now I've got into fast bikes. Well, that's brilliant. I've lived my life. Doesn't matter now, does it? (laughs) (laughs) Graham, go and touch some wood now. (laughs) (laughs) It's only your Thruxton, mate. You know, there's faster bikes out there. Yeah, it's true, but, you know, you know, I used to ride old sportsters. I don't have to tell you. <laughs> it's fast for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Graham, I was going to say, it, it could be a little bit in the mind because you seem to think the Thruxton's really fast. Brian's telling us maybe it's not that fast. Maybe it's as you get older, everything seems like it's moving faster, and you're going the same damn speed you were before, but it just feels like your hair is moving more. <laughs> there was a moment in the Alps, and I thought I was doing pretty well. And... Um, purely focused on the road ahead, sweeping bend after sweeping bend, and about five screaming four-cylinder Japanese sports bikes came blasting past me so fast they made me jump, and I never saw their taillights again. I mean, they must have known the road, but they were all, without without exception, spectacular riders, and they just left me standing on my beautiful, black, sexy-looking bike, which I clearly <laughs> cannot ride even close to its limit. So, guys so, were gone. So honestly, <laughs> at that point, did you let off the throttle and, and just uh, you know sort of shake it off and go, ah, I'm good, I'm just taking my what? time? Luckily, about 15 no, bends later, there was a T-junction. <laughs> they, they were all deliberating whether they should do left or right, so I did catch them. <laughs> hey, Graham, isn't it like that? Now, you rode around the track at the Isle of Man. It's like that. You can go around there, and you think you're doing really well, and these blokes come past you, and you have a look at their number plates, and they've got the legs of man on their number plate, and you know damn well, <laughs> don't even try to keep up. You do this all year round. Yeah. <laughs> well, we went to that thing in the Isle of Man, they got a museum, Shirley had told me about it, where they've got a video of the Isle of Man track, and you can pretend you're on a bike, and you can, on the video game, you can ride around the track. And I knew a little bit of the track coming down from, um, what is it, Craig Newbur and the hanging coming down to the to the finish line. And this kid's on it, and I'm standing there kind of in an intimidating manner saying, now get off it, it's my turn. <laughs> <laughs> and at first I'm giving him a bit of advice, you're going to have a sharp right-hander here. And then he made it, he'd obviously done a few laps, and then he made it through the, through the pits, through the finish line. I said, well done. And he's kept on going and saying, you're not doing another lap. And then... <laughs> 
So I'm standing closer to him, trying to be intimidating. And then the, the teacher, the, the lady who was in charge of the kids, stood closer to me, thinking, get away from the kid, hippie. <laughs> <laughs> so I never got a go on the video. <laughs> that was a fun museum, wasn't it? The old leathers and everything they had there and those helmets that were like they were made out of paper mache. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that really is something else. If ever you get the opportunity, boys, you've got to go and have a look. At them. And I really enjoyed the classics, the older bikes. Just going to a little pub somewhere, there'd be hundreds of bikes and they, every one of them would be a classic bike. And it was just fantastic. And then there's the racing on top of that. That was sort of the highlight of your trip, I gather. Well, it was the main reason for going at this time of year was to go to the Isle of Man and um, the people we travel with, we got a, a house there and um, we were able to stay at a beautiful little place called Port Erin in the south. So apart from the racing, there's, there's lots and lots of things to do and see on that island. It really is quite special, but, you know, I've, I've, I love it. Um, the atmosphere, the racing, um, the, the fact that, you know, Triumph t took all their old bikes from their museum out there, the, the bike that... Um, Steve McQueen used in The Great Escape, or they wouldn't let Steve uh, use it to jump the, the barbed wire. He really wanted to, uh, but that bike was there now. I think we're digging too far into racing here. Let's get back on track. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> Adventure racing and radio. Yeah, right. <laughs> Thruxtons and racing and... <laughs> Hey, from from the last show, remember we put out the call for um, for questions, and we were sort of inundated with questions. So, what we've done is carried some of those over, and I want to cover a couple of those um, on this show today. So, if, if you guys are up for it, I'm going to fire one off for you. It's from Gwen Williams. So, Gwen Williams writes, "Hi guys, love the show, and thanks for the company on some of my long road trips with work." And then she goes on to, to talk about, I don't know, some sort of singer, something to do with Brian and Shirley. I'm sure you guys got that, uh, being a comedian. Tim but... Minchin is a legend. Uh, I'm just try and avoid I don't know. This. <laughs> he wrote the um, the musical Matilda, which is on in the West End, and it's probably been on in New York. And, uh, yeah, no, Tim Minchin is huge. Have you never uh, even watched a YouTube video, Jim? Yeah. Have, have you seen the YouTube um, where he's doing um, a talk at a university? It looks like graduation day or yes. something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was just funny. He was given yeah, a, yeah, when they gave him his honorary doctorate. Yeah, yeah it's right. it, It's very funny. Google him. He's a very entertaining, interesting young man. It's quite unique, Absolutely. yeah. <laughs> he is. Okay, sorry for no, the No, no, I've, I've just made the connection, actually. I've, I've just sort of realized not to do anything to do with what you were talking about because I zoned out as soon as you started talking about that. My connection was rabbit holes. I thought, why are we going down so many rabbit holes? I thought, who has this association with rabbits? <laughs> I know, it's the Aussies, and that's where the rabbit holes are coming from. Go figure. Uh, well, well, rabbits, hang on, hang on. The rabbits Sam's, came from England. Exactly, so. <laughs> little pests that came over on a boat. You guys were <laughs> anal about a little bit of dirt, but you brought the rabbits over and you thought nothing of that. They learned their lesson. So onward, Gwyn writes. <laughs> Thank you for your question, Gwyn. Moving on. <laughs> Got me to thinking, do the panel consider themselves primarily riders or travelers? Because I imagine that the thrill of the ride can be satisfied by growing around the block to the same extent that the enjoyment of travel to far-flung destinations can really keep you going, even through those long, bum-breaking, tedious hours in the saddle. Take care, folks. That was Gwyn Williams. It's a good question, you know, riders or travelers? I mean, because 
There's a lot of talk here about racing, a lot of talk about Thruxtons, uh, about different kinds of motorcycles, but there's also a lot of passion for travel. You can really hear it when everyone speaks about it. I suppose as a young boy, I was a rider first, but, uh, you know, it plants the seed of what's around and um, t- travel to me is what it's all about, to be quite honest with you. Uh, I can I can enjoy both passions of uh, riding and travel. And uh, I've got to say, Cheryl's uh, a great foil that way. She does a hell of a lot of research when we start travelling and um, it saves me doing it and uh, I just enjoy the ride. And uh, we go to these, some of these great exotic places. Um, but And then you find out uh, when you get there, there's some good roads to ride. Wow, you know, you can do both. That's what it's all about. It is about both. Well, uh, yeah, uh, I don't. I, I guess there's um, really no difference really? to me. You travel, you ride. Well, you know, riding, riding's, you know, riding is about the elements too. You, you smell it, you feel it. You, if it rains, you get wet. Uh, if it's windy, you get blown around, and then you get beautiful days like uh, Sam's just experienced in Portugal, and we have here too. You know, where it's just a great day to be out on the bike. So, um, you, you know, and then all of a sudden you find yourself in some exotic location, like Meteoria in in Greece or wherever. Sure, you know, it's yeah. just wonderful. I just saw an advertisement that ran, uh, I guess, probably about six or seven years ago. I think it was, I think it was an Australian ad for the Yamaha WR250. And it was kind of a neat ad because it starts out the guy's working in an office and then he jumps on his bike and off he rides, you know, into the, I guess, the desert. And then he ends up, I think, maybe going to Egypt, maybe South America. And then he rides back home uh, on his motorcycle. And as he pulls in his, and his buddies split off and they go and they're in a suburban area, he sort of spins around and decides that he's going to head back out again. It, it, it's sort of like that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it's very much like that. There's a there's a girl who's just um, riding across um, the Nullarbor and people think it's boring, but she's taken the dirt roads on her Tiger 800 and she's posted a photo where she's binned it. It's gone down the road, up down some dirt track and she's smashed off the uh, the front brake and she's standing there scratching her head and she says, oh, well, you know, it'll be right. So she gets on it and keeps riding it, and she's just ridden it into Perth, still looking for a front brake somewhere. But you know, that's that's what you do. And she's think- an experienced world traveller, isn't she? She's got that attitude. It's, oh yeah, it's um, Sherry Joe, isn't it? Yeah, it's Sherry Joe. Yeah. 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 It's, it's absolutely typical of her, isn't it, to take the dirt roads and not uh, not stay on the asphalt. Yeah, yeah, and she's posted some great photos of her camp out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, on a beach somewhere, probably down in the the south of WA, I would think, by the look of it. When she did the um, Road of Bones yeah. and we were planning our trip to Russia, I think Brian deeply regretted getting me to watch Sherry Jo's video of her doing the Road of Bones because clearly it was not going to be on my agenda after watching what she went through. She really is amazing. Yeah, yeah she's a good girl. Graham? Where do you weigh in? Um, I am so half and half. I mean, as a kid going on package travel deals with my parents or when we went to Cyprus or former Yugoslavia. So right as a kid, I travelled. I had motorbikes before I was old enough to have a licence. My first independent trip was to go to the States with a girlfriend. We'd been saving our money to buy a Harley-Davidson, bought a 1960 Sportster. This is back in the 80s. So... Um, it has always been about travel and it has always been about motorcycles. And 
sometimes sort of individually, you know, only bikes and not much travel, only travel without a motorcycle. And now I live in a country that I wasn't even born in. That's quite travelly. And uh, obviously can't stop talking about bikes. So I am very much both a biker and a traveller. I think that's why I get the honour of doing this show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I have to agree with Graham. Much the same thing. Um, I started out as a motorcyclist, but unlike Graham, when my family... Uh, we didn't go traveling anywhere. That was just not done. It wasn't in the budget. So when I got a motorcycle, all of a sudden I could go anywhere I wanted to go as long as it was on the road. Um, so I was always off on the bike somewhere, going as far as I could go. I mean, it was only a 250 at the time, and the 250s then were slow. But I did a lot of traveling with it. But it's also always been about the bike. I started out as a racer very early on and spent a lot of time racing and as uh, a Suzuki dealer and so forth. So to me, it's the bike and it's the travel connected. The bike travel to me is the ideal combination. You get out and you, you're on your bike, you're enjoying the travel, you're seeing places, you're seeing things and having a ride at the same time. And I remember one incident in Africa, we pulled to a stop at this little roadside stand, which wasn't much of a stand and stopped and had a drink and then a four-wheel drive pulled up on the other side of the road and they wanted to have a drink too but everybody ignored them but we had a crowd around us asking us about where are you from and where are you going what are you doing and they were very interested but this four-wheel drive people could care less about them these were rich people so the the local people could connect with us because we were on a motorcycle and they could they could sort of understand that but a four-wheel drive no 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 they'd never be able to afford that so that connection to the local people because you're on a motorcycle was always a fascinating thing for us. And um, I think it, it really enhanced the travel for us. So the travel and the motorcycle go together and make something that's more than the sum of the two. So yeah, I'm yeah. both. Just just uh, listening to um, Graham and Grant, I, I think about that. I, I got my first motorcycle when I was about 11, I think. So, and, and my backyard was 90 miles of river frontage. Uh, <laughs> myself and my mates, on a weekend, um, when, we, when we should have been studying, we would jump on our motorbikes, pack our swags on our little bikes and head off into the bush and just camp out there for Saturday night and then might come home about late on Sunday. So I, I think it's a bit of both, you know, and that's been with me always, that, that there's always been that that want to go and travel and do things a little differently to others. Sam? No, that makes sense. And I guess for me, um, I'm still a traveller first. But that, I suppose, shouldn't surprise anybody because, you know, I was almost born on the road. I was born in Africa. Um, lived there until I was 10 years old and then lived in various different places around the world and um, then my first solo trip was when I was 16 and that was on a bicycle and then I hiked and backpacked and bussed and trained and all of those sorts of things before discovering motorcycling. I came to motorcycling quite late. Um, and, I, you know, once I discovered the, the pure joy of riding, actually motorcycling became more important um, than the travel. Uh, but... I don't know, motorcycle just gives the opportunity to take um, the best of so many of 
the advantages of the other ways of travel and put them together with less of the disadvantages of the other ways of traveling, like riding a bicycle into 12 days of headwind. Um, and I, I suppose in the end, you know, I never forget one thought. For me, it doesn't matter how you travel, but it does matter that you actually do travel. And one of the keys for me with motorcycling now um, is just the lack of barriers. And Grant was talking about that just now. The, the lack of barriers between you and other people and just the sheer freedom that being on a motorcycle gives you. It's not only the opportunity to enjoy the buzz of the road to explore, um, but it's also the opportunity to learn and challenge yourself in different ways than when you're backpacking. Um, so I suppose in a way it's those things that make me a traveller first, but um, motorcycling just simply fits. And that's why I've stayed with this form of travel ever since the big trip and just not looked anywhere else for any other forms. Um, I, I love the combination. It, it just rocks. It also gets you sort of into a club, doesn't it? You know, you're traveling by motorcycle, you you have a connection. I mean, I guess you would with, with other travels too, if you're backpacking or something like that. But but I always imagine there's something with the, the motorcycle, that there's a sort of a deeper connection with it when you see another motorcyclist. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think that's right, Jim. But you know, great, Graham will attest to this too. You know, we're sitting down having a, a, a meal on the Isle of Man and there's lots of motorcyclists around us and... You know, you've got a travel bike there. They come up and talk to you. They want to know where you've been, what you've done. Where, weren't they, Graham? Brian, you were so gregarious. You couldn't know everyone. You spoke to everybody. Everybody <laughs> walked past. It wasn't a matter of them looking at your bike. They couldn't pass without being accosted by you. <laughs> no, I was just looking at that little thing of yours that you were riding that was parked in the shadow of my big beamer. Well, I, I didn't come to show off. I came to watch, not to be seen. <laughs> it's funny, Brian's suddenly gone quiet. <laughs> but no, I mean, Brian, they are the best icebreakers out, aren't they? I mean, it gives everybody the opportunity to ask a question and, and you know, uh, Virtually every country in the world that you go to, you're going to come across very quickly people who are enthusiastic about riding motorcycles or would love to ride one. And just being able to say, how big is the engine or where have you come from or any of those questions. Um, and the ice is broken, the conversation started and you're learning straight away. And it really helps you to learn the best of human nature, doesn't it? The best of the world. It's not like being stuck in a glass and metal box where you're insulated. And I know that's a very cliched saying, but it's just so true, isn't it? All the time. Motorcyclists have a, a community because we are different. We are separate from the norm and we stand out and we tend to help each other and work together with each other and talk to each other. I think that's an, a normal thing. It's kind of, it's a very big click, I guess you could say. And and the traveler bikes and the travelers that actually are out there doing the traveling, it's another click within a click and it's all, it's all connected and we all help each other. And I think that's something that I've seen so much. If you're a, a traveler, people want to help out. They want to meet you and they want to connect with you. It's, it's a wonderful thing. And of course, that's why you ride down the road and you, you know, nod or wave. And, you know, that's a, that's an interesting one yeah. when it comes to, to waving at another motorcyclist. That's sort of a, I, I just oh, passed no, a group don't of, start, don't start. I, I just passed a group there last time I was out riding 
and and when I went by, you know, I, I waved, there's, and there's a number of bikes there. I wave, and of course, there's a couple of bikes in the middle that don't wave, and they're a particular type of bike that I've learned to spot as a rider that they don't wave to other riders. And and, and it got me to thinking about the wave. When I was a kid, my parents had a remote cottage where you had to go in by boat. It was like, you know, an hour and a bit, I guess, boat ride in. And we had, some, you know, small boats and stuff. But when you pass another boat, you'd always wave. You know, it was, it was like an acknowledgement of something. You know, you, you're you both, well, I don't want to say in the same boat, but you're, you're both doing the same thing. It was an acknowledgement <laughs> of the task of what you're dealing with. And if you saw a boat stop, you would never pass without stopping and saying, are you okay? But usually you didn't have to. Usually they would just wave at you, you know, giving you the sign and the, and the big smile. They're fine. And and you you would go by. But anytime they're stopped, you, you would definitely stop. And, and it wasn't that long ago that I read a column in a, in a magazine. It was an editorial. And he said that the wave is dead, that he will no longer wave at motorcyclists. I can't remember his exact reasoning, but it was like he just wouldn't do it anymore. I don't know. I, I guess it, maybe it's because there's too many bikes. I don't know. Because I guess if we were all in cars waving at each other, going by in cars, everybody would be waving continually. So my question is, do you guys still wave when you go by another bike coming the other opposite direction? I'm not having this conversation. Absolutely. I'm not getting involved in this conversation. <laughs> why not? <laughs> why, why are you sitting on your hands? What are you afraid of? Because it has been discussed so many times and there is no right and there is no wrong. Hang on. And everybody's got Have an opinion we discussed and it ain't going it? to change anything. But did we discuss it before? <laughs> oh, no, God. There's a lot of discussion about no it last. generally. Uh, no, I wave all the time. And I I try and force others to wave all the time because I've been helped out by other motorcyclists on the side of the road and I help out other guys that I find stuck on the side of the road. And I think it's just a natural thing. Now, right in the outback of Australia, you pass a car, they will wave to you. You can pick the farmers because they'll just lift the finger on the top of the steering wheel, uh, but they'll wave to you because you're out in the elements where if something goes wrong, you can die out there. And people, in the, particularly in the outback, will do that, even in cars. But And uh, I've got to say, I'm going to try and keep it alive as long as I can. How do you I force think that's somebody great. to wave? Good on you. I mean- yeah, I make big hand gestures. Make them feel little. <laughs> Look at me, my bike. <laughs> I thought you were physically chasing him down. You know, the bike goes by and he doesn't wave. So you spin around, you chase no. after the guy, you pull over, you say, hey, buddy. No, no, I no, just no. embarrass the bastards. You embarrass them into it. <laughs> uh, listen, I always wave. I, I really enjoy those fleeting moments of friendship with kindred spirits. And I always imagine that somebody else has got that momentary smile inside their helmet that I have in mine when I see somebody out having a buzz. And I'm always a little bit disappointed when people don't wave. But at the same time, I accept that there are moments where somebody hasn't seen you, somebody's distracted, somebody needs to suddenly focus on something. And so there are moments where people don't get the opportunity to wave. Um, But when they do, it's it's just a, a momentary buzz. And that's really nice. So I do it. Sam, have you ever passed Graham going in the opposite direction? I think the last time we did that, something to do with the middle finger happened. Ah, so it does wave. That's a unique wave. (laughs) I think it was Royal Salute, something like that, Graham? We haven't heard from Grant yet. (laughs) Uh, I wave. And if they don't wave back, hey, like... Sam was saying they could be distracted or, I mean, I've come around a corner and somebody waves at me and, oops, I'm just in the middle of a gear change. Sorry, didn't wave. You know, you all, I almost feel guilty when I don't wave back. Uh, but I wave or Susan waves if she knows I'm busy 
um, we always wave. It's part of being connected, being part of the tribe. And that's okay. And if people don't want to wave back, that's okay. I don't care. I'm having fun. I'm enjoying my life. I'm enjoying my ride. And I'm enjoying being part of the motorcycle community. That's okay. Grant, you guys will know of um, Kevin and Karen Brown. They rode around the world yes. on a motor guzzy, which they'd heavily yep. adapted until it looked like um, something else of a Mad Max movie. But they had, a, <laughs> yeah. they had a windscreen and they put a windscreen wiper on this. And when they were... Um, not traveling in rain they'd quite often put a glove on the end of the windscreen wiper and when they saw somebody coming towards them they just click the windscreen wiper on so that was waving for them brilliant i loved it It was just so funny to see graham what did you say uh yeah i saw him in mongolia i met him in mongolia on that motor guzzy it had side wheel stabilizers and everything didn't it, it yeah kind of a thing <laughs> so graham are you gonna weigh in here oh yeah i've got quite a few different bikes and if I, I've got a chopped Harley with the ape hangers and everything and I found that a lot of people won't ride at Harley riders because a lot of Harley riders will only ride at Harleys wear wave at Harleys and then a lot of Harley riders don't necessarily recognize my bike as a Harley because it's not out of the factory it's very very custom so even Harley riders don't wave at me when I'm riding a Harley so if I'm on the Harley I uh, I will wave at anything but a Harley because the Harley riders are up themselves. They don't wave at me even recognising that I'm on a Harley. When I'm on a sports bike, I kind of... Then this is this is the other thing, right? What you've got to remember, Jim, is in the UK and in Australia and several other countries, we ride on... In the UK, we ride on the, on the left. So to wave with our right hand would involve taking your hand off the throttle. So we don't instinctively wave. We tend to do the head nod. So... But of course, when you drift to a country in Europe and, and or the States where you're riding on the right hand side of the road, it's easier to take your left hand off and wave to the person. So there's a whole bunch of criteria. And and also, if I'm just pissed off, like I've re realized I've left my passport at a border and turning back to get it, then I'm not waving. If I just can't get to the border because I left me. Left he does it on a regular basis, I gather. <laughs> If I'm turning back from a border because I can't get through it because I left my vehicle documents in a different country, I'm not waving because I'm pissed off. So I do, I'm not opposed to waving. I do wave, but I, do, I have a, a varying criteria, which is based on weather, personal mood, the other bike, um, and, and all sorts of things. So, and, and I will always, without exception, return a wave, even if it's in their mirror. <laughs> but I don't always initiate it. And I think writing an article saying the wave is dead is very irresponsible thing to write. Absolutely. Well, now that's quite an opinion from someone who didn't want to get into the conversation. <laughs> because I just, because this is, a, we could spend hours talking about this. And I don't think, and I think ultimately everybody's got their own criteria and opinion. I just think it's hard luggage, soft luggage, it's which ties. It's just one of those subjects. Okay, well, we'll leave it at that, and I'll move on to another question we have here for logistics of visas from Michelle Savigny. Michelle writes, I tend to travel without planning too much in advance, but have usually done uh, only one country in depth at a time. I'm still a few years away, but I imagine, or, but when I imagine my round-the-world trip, uh, my head starts to spin with so many visas. So what needs to get done before you go versus what 
you can get on the road. Time of applications, time permitted for each country, and how it relates to route planning. She says how to balance freedom of just going with the flow versus overwhelm of needing to plan for visas and applications, et cetera, before you leave home. She just wants to hit the road. And, and, but now she's saying she feels the need to, or feels like she has to carry an Excel spreadsheet for the timing of all visas. And that's Michelle Savigny. I think I'm, I'm pronouncing that right. So this is a huge, huge question. I know, but can they you know, maybe could you guys shed some light in this and sort of a, a real like a reader's digest format? Look, I think the condensed version is if you've got a rough idea where you'd like to go in your trip, have a look at what sort of requirements there are. And then when you're on the road, just keep in mind, well, if I want to go to Central Asia, I've got to apply within 30 days of when I want to get there. So, you know, if I'm in Finland and I want to get across there, I should start applying now. You know, it doesn't have to be that rigid, but you you do need to be aware of what the requirements are. I mean, nothing makes me laugh more than people who put on Facebook, oh, I've just arrived at a border. Um, Do you think I need a carne? Well, you probably (laughs) should have thought about that a little bit before you got to the border. Yeah, Yeah. a whole lot before. Yeah. Yeah, There's so much information and questions on the hub about that. And the biggest thing that needs to be said right up front is it depends on what your nationality is. Every, every nationality has different requirements at every border. Um, Australians tend to need more visas than others because Australia requires visas of everybody. So yeah. countries retaliate. Uh, as Canadians, we need very few visas. We have very little difficulty. We have multiple passports and we travel on the Canadian one because, well, it seems like nobody hates Canadians, so we have no problems. Uh, and we just tend to rock up at a border and wave our passports and no problem. Uh, although when we went to India two years ago for India Bike Week, we needed visas and we had to get that organized in advance before we left. But um, doing your basic research and when you ask a question, do I need a visa for this country? Make sure you tell them where, what country you're from because it makes a difference. So that's the place to start. But check out on the hub. There's lots of information and lots and lots and lots of people have posted tons of information about where they need visas. I tell you, um, Michelle made me laugh when with this question. And hi, Michelle. Um, your comment about um, needing an Excel spreadsheet. And I, when I finished laughing, I just I thought, why not? What a great idea. If you're used to using an Excel spreadsheet and you're comfortable with using that to, to register and lodge everything down, then why not? Because you, I don't know, sometimes before you start off on a big trip, you, you could have the feeling that you're standing at the bottom of a big mountain looking up and wondering which is the way up the mountain. Um, and it's only when you start beginning to pull in the in- bits and pieces of information that you start to be able to see the path. I, mean, I always get worried that people do too much preparation and um, then they see multiple paths up that mountain and then they never know which one to take and they just think actually... I'll go around the outside and they never actually get to the top of the mountain to see the view. And I always think that's really sad because too much prep can get you that way. But you have to do a certain amount of prep. You can't get to borders and, well, yes, you can get to borders and not have the right paperwork. But why on earth would you want to unless you're a bit of a masochist and you'd love the idea of being stuck at a border for for two weeks trying to scrabble around and call in favours from friends to get paperwork sorted out for you when their lives are busy and they're dealing with all of their own problems. It's 
It's why would you want to do that? And learning about the countries and the things that you've got to do to be able to travel, um, maxing out the possibility, travel with a smile. Well, that's all part of the, the curve of going on a trip. And just learning the basics um, about going into that country. It's a matter of respect as much as anything else, but it is fun. And whether you pay any attention to half of the stuff that you've learned when you're actually in the country, well, that's a different matter. But it's, well, would you go into the desert without a good supply of water? Probably not. Preparations, that good supply of water, in my mind, anyway. Yeah. Interesting uh, perspective is that when we left for our travels in 1987, this was way pre-internet and uh, there was no way to find out anything via electronics. So we sent out almost 100 letters, paper letters, to all the embassies of the countries we possibly might want to go to, trying to find out what the border requirements were, visa requirements, and anything else we needed to know to get into the country. We got exactly zero responses. So when we headed off, we knew nothing. I mean, we literally hit the Mexican border with no clue, nothing. All we knew is there's a border on the map, so there must be a border post. We must do something to get across it, but we have no idea. And that was the theme of our trip pretty much all the way. We had no idea. There was nothing to tell us what to do. Michelle's question got me thinking exactly the same way, Grant. I mean, once, of course, it was the case of going to each embassy. Once you'd actually found their addresses and then you'd discovered what their opening hours were or you were telephoning them and trying to make a, a hassled person whose language isn't yours understand what you needed to know. And m most of the time... And you're just plain weird. Yeah, yeah well, you're absolutely. weird. They don't understand. You're going to travel to my country by land? Yeah. What, what are you? You're, everybody flies in. You fly into the capital city to the airport and they deal with you there. Travel by yep. land? Are you crazy? Yep. I, mean, I remember going into Egypt from Libya and we were the only non-Libyans there. And they hadn't seen any other tourists, travelers, nothing in years. Like nobody. So we were treated like royalty and fast track through and it still took us six hours. But it was just plain strange. So today, you can find out the information. I mean, you go onto our website and you Google visa for Turkmenistan and guess what? It's going to come up and somebody's going to have done it and the information's there. And you can do a little research and find out whether that applies to you, your nationality, and away you go. It's not that hard anymore. But there is a certain joy in just arriving and what do I need to know and figuring it out on the spot. I mean. We had that experience many, many times. So I think the important, like Sam was saying, you need to do some preparation, just don't over-prepare. Um, we always talk about comfort zone. Everybody has their own comfort zone, which is I have reached the level of knowledge that I feel I need in order to do this trip. So you've reached your comfort level. So everybody's different. The thing now, of course, Grant, is that um People at border crossings are far more aware of what those coming into their country require. Yes. Because they also yeah. have the internet and uh, they in uh, in the 80s maybe you could convince them because you had a current passport and you were really nice people that it was, wasn't going to do anyone any harm. But if you don't have the right paperwork now, you can smile as much as you like, but you ain't getting it. It's not going to do any good. <laughs> That's a good point. Exactly, yeah. 
I remember going yeah. up to some borders with with Al Carne and having to teach the people at the border how to process the carne. Oh, oh yes, yes. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yes, had that experience that's several now, times. It? Depends okay. on the border crossing you're going across. Um, yeah, we've got true. a border Main crossing ones. database now. There are something like 3,000 border crossings that we could figure out. And you can bet that some of them nobody's nobody goes through except locals. So if you suddenly rock mm. up at one of these little tiny border cross posts in the middle of nowhere, they don't know what a carne is and they don't know what the rules are. I mean, we and used to course. tell people that um, what you, what the embassy or the paperwork or the official government's information is on the requirements to enter a country have no relationship to what the actual border crossing that you're standing at says. They're two different things. There are some borders which are only open to locals. Yes, that's true. So you might have to ride another 100 kilometres up the, up the track to find the border that uh, international uh, Tajik, people Tajikistan. can pass. Tajikistan's like that. Yeah, Uzbekistan. Yeah. Graham, anything to add there? Yeah, it is so daunting sometimes. And, and we've been talking about the stands, and that was probably one of the most research I did for getting visas and spent a week in Ankara going to the different um, embassies and getting them. Um, and again, it's very much like Grant says, depends on your nationality, it depends on your destination. The research can seem daunting. I think if you chunk it a little bit, break it down to an area, and it, it's amazing how quickly you start to get informed when you do hit a good forum, uh, like Horizons Unlimited or something that's specific for that area. I found a place called uh, Stand Tours, who were great, yes. very yep. knowledgeable. God knows what time zone he was in. Whatever time I emailed him, I got an instant reply. Dave the guy from, never yeah. slept. Dave <laughs> from Stand Tours is very sharing with his information. Absolutely. Yeah. And there was another one, Caravanistan, which was also very useful. So I, I totally agree. It is daunting the whole Excel sheet and the and the research side of it. But it's a it's a it's a it's a toss up between you know you can go freely and unresearched, and you can find you rode within five miles and some world class site and were totally unaware of it. Mm -hmm. Alternatively, you could stumble upon that site having known nothing about it and be absolutely in awe of it because it was a complete surprise to you. It's 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 a tightrope. It's really hard to know which is to do for the best. I think one of the things that I really like about doing the level of prep that we do is that it means that when I hit the road, I'm not worrying about oh now what paperwork i'm going to need for that border this that and the other and yes it may be different when we get there but at least i'm leaving with the sensation that i've done the best i can and i find that for me and somebody said just now that everybody's different but for me it just means that i'm on the road relaxed i'm chilled i've got the the gray cell power to take on board um all of the unexpected things the interesting things that i didn't know about um but also the, the sensation that if something were to go wrong, I wouldn't be battling with what had suddenly gone wrong as well as, now what paperwork do I need for the next border? Um, it's, it's, a, it's a balance, isn't it? It really is. But it's fascinating. I love it. You know, just learning all of these different things about the different countries and so on before I go. And it is so easy to do now. So easy. And as, once you start getting into it, it just becomes a journey of fascination that you can do from the comfort of your own home. It's like the warm up um, to the big trip. 
Well, that's a that's a very that was a really good answer from everyone. I like that. And and the the chunking it thing, uh, I I forget who said that. Was it Graham that said the, about chunking it? I think that that's really important with anything, isn't it? When you're doing a, a great big thing, and I think Sam, you alluded to it as well, or you said something about it as well about um, tackling a piece of it. You know, work away at a piece and then move on to the next thing. It's sometimes when you look at I forget who said about the mountain. You look at that mountain and it's huge. Yeah, you got to break it down, and, and that goes with everything in life, isn't it? It's always easier to do it that way. So um, we have another one here. Um, this one, I hear tinkle from glasses. Who, what, what, are you, what are the Rickses uh, drinking anyway? Uh, I'm sorry, but Brian's making a Bloody Mary. Uh, oh. The uh, cocktail bar is open in the, in the goldfields. Is it, is it 9 a.m. already there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just packed up the breakfast dishes. No, it's... Um, <laughs> it's nearly half past four in the afternoon, so it is nearly cocktail hour. So is the Bloody Mary like your your drink? Is that what you guys like? That's what your slice. You know, that's that's the drink you have when you're going to relax. No, it's Graham's birthday, so I thought I'd have a Bloody Mary. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, I'm going to have to go to the fridge now. <laughs> oh, I tell you what, it's, a, it's only quarter past. It's only quarter past six, but I think I'll go and make one as well. Hang on a second, I'll be back in the tick. <laughs> well, it's still Graham's birthday here too. I mean, you know, it's ten o'clock here. For those fans of the Bloody Mary, let me tell you, when we were in London, we went to a restaurant in the Nobu Hotel in Shoreditch and they had Japanese cocktails and the Bloody Mary was made with sake and it was delicious. Wow. Instead of vodka. Yeah, and and it was really spicy and lots of... um, a real peppery flavour to it. It was really, really good. I really but like at, the sound of that. At ten pound a throw, I only had one. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> what what is a bloody mary? You you said vodka and and what else? Vodka, Graham? tomato juice, Tabasco, Worcester sauce, salt, pepper, lemon juice, stick of celery in it. Um, sometimes a little bit of um, horseradish. It's a wonderful drink, and it's it's two of your five a day, so you're getting your vegetable kick anyway. <laughs> <laughs> It's like you read it off a label. <laughs> I just wanna, I, there's not many things I do well, but I do make a good Bloody Mary. <laughs> well, on to Carl Ray, because Carl Ray has a question. Oh, it, no, it, no, he, no, you've missed out one. Can what? you? Th- there's a much, much better one. Okay. Well, it's not a much better you, one, but it's you, you, you're, you're saying <laughs> you've got a better question. Yeah, Carl sorry, Ray's Carl. question is not as good as what you're oh, saying. We're marginalizing <laughs> Carl here. <laughs> The question being, does it ever get any easier cutting down on the stuff you pack for a long trip? And I have one answer. Who, who asked the question? Uh, Marjorie. Marjorie Schillen. My pronunciation is probably really off the mark. I think you pronounce it Maria. Maria Schillen. Sorry, Maria. I'm Australian. We are hopeless. But I have one very simple answer to you for your question. No. (laughs) (laughs) And the question again, does it ever get easier cutting down on the stuff you pack for a long trip? Just no. That's it. Just no. It doesn't. That's in the story. (laughs) Yeah. I think you end up better and more closely packed every time. But those last few things are always going to be difficult. We need this. We need it. Am I going to need? Do I, I want it? It's just trying to make the decision. That's that last few things is always difficult. Ninety percent of it's easy. You you've done it so many times. It's obvious. But the last few things, yeah. I, no, no. I, I I think Graham's got it right. 
having a look at the panniers on that bloody thing he was riding, you could fit a two a two pair pair of jocks and a, and a t shirt in it, and that'd be about it. That'd be right, Graham. Yeah, yeah. As, as I said, when I, I spent more time at Boulder, I did have nail clippers <laughs> and claws in the end. I was having to grind my fingers on bits of concrete. I didn't have nail clippers. <laughs> How fast your nails grow. <laughs> Longer than I was here, quicker than I thought. You don't notice it until you're suddenly deprived of such accessories. <laughs> Hair care products and nail products. Up. <laughs> Sorry, Shirley. Howard Hughes of Bulgaria. Didn't he have really long nails like a a Japanese a Chinese warlord? Yeah, yeah like he, 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 his, toe, his toenails were that long that he used to wear tissue boxes on his feet around the house. <laughs> there you go. Now that's something to conjure up. Sorry, that was a delusion. More good information. This, this show's great for learning stuff. Yeah. Hang on a minute. Listen, guys, can we just not talk about incredibly long toenails? It's not I know, it's my breakfast yet. It? <laughs> He's only just sipping his first Bloody Mary. Hang around. It's only going to get better. <laughs> More rabbit holes. Yay. How about you, Sam? Does it ever get any easier cutting down on the stuff you pack for a long trip? Um, yeah, it does. Um, um, but that only works because of two things. And the first thought is, um, let your head rule your passion and your uncertainty. Think wow. about it. <laughs> and we have packing yeah. lists. And we have a packing list for hot, for hot journeys, for cold journeys, for developing world. Um, and those three packing lists are set up with stuff that we now know. Um, we're going to need for um, using on a trip into those particular different types of, of, of area. And it makes life so much easier. Um, now, as I'm saying that, I'm laughing because we've just got back from this Portugal trip. And the first thing we did as we unpacked was to go through um, everything that we'd taken and make a list of the things that we didn't need. Use, yeah, yeah. And everything that I didn't use... Um, was to do with looking after the bike. So does that mean you're going to cut it? Yeah, until it breaks. Well, leaves, then you need it. And then you go, yeah, exactly. Oh, that leaves shit, you with the dilemma, doesn't it? The number of times Shirley argued that she didn't have to have the tyre pliers in her pannier, um, and I insist every trip we take the tyre pliers. And we've never used them. Never used them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyone else? Graham? Uh Sorry, I was thinking about Bloody Marys and how I'm going to escape the trips to make one. <laughs> Remember the <laughs> What are we talking about again? Packing. Um, I think I've said before, when I've got back from big trips, or my big trips for me, you know, my three-month trips, and I have very meticulously written down everything that I unpacked from my panniers and had a little marking system as to whether I used it or not. So, yes, I think it does get a bit easier to pack. But like Grant says, having now cut down, and my panniers are not bulging, there is some space in the top, you do find yourself thinking in the last few days or few hours, oh, what can I put in that space? Uh, <laughs> but, it, it, and again, as I've said before, having a bit of space at the top of your panniers is when you stop and buy some fruit or some bread, Having that little yeah. bit of space is so easy because bananas and bungees do not go together. So um, <laughs> it, it, it does get easier, I think. And the thing is, again, with the research, it can be daunting because if you look at everybody's pack lists, you're going to end up taking a trailer. So it, it's down to you and your own criteria. But I would say after a few trips, it does get easier. For me, writing it down 
is definitely a winner because I'm so distracted when I'm packing for a trip. I've got so many things on my mind. I can't even do the next question without thinking about Bloody Mary. So I'm easily distracted. And so I think having the pack list, and it also says this was in the left pannier, this was in the right pannier, this was in the tank box. So not only do I know what I had, I know how it was packed. So it, and it goes together harmoniously and wonderful after a few trips. So my answer is the complete opposite to Shirley. Yes, it does get <laughs> No, I think you're a very organised person, Graham, and I don't think Shirley is. Well, from doing commercial trips, I think I've said this before, from doing commercial trips, um, we learned the value of packing lists because even though we were doing the same trips over and over and over again, and sometimes multiple times a day, uh, you're packing for these multi-day trips to go out, you had to have packing lists and, and, and a bunch of lists as well. And we even had double checklists and things like that. So really, really important to uh, to get everything that you need, not forget anything. Of course, it's not that much of a panic when you're on the road because, as Grant said many times, you can stop and buy stuff. It's not the yeah. end of the world. No. Yeah, I think that's important. And it's funny listening to all you guys saying all this about packing lists and packing lists. I remember making a packing list. The last time I looked at it was 1989, I think, something like that. I don't have a packing list. It's just, it's all in my head. I know what I need, and I just do a, from the top of my head to my toes, and bike needs this and I start in front of the bike and works through all in my head what I need and documentation arrive at a border crossing I need this and I need this and I need this and I need this and I make sure I've got them and that's the way I do a list because for me especially now with all the air travel I do I'm going to different countries different requirements um, different events I have different requirements for the things I need for the event etc and my packing list changes so I just use front of the bike to the back of the bike or event, arrive at the event and finish the event and do a mental checklist through that I can do everything I need to do or I have everything for me that I need. And that's kind of it. And my um, personal kit has everything in a slot. And if there's an empty slot, I'm missing something. And that's how I work. So Grant, you always for me it's fairly easy. your nail clippers then. <laughs> oh yeah, I have I have two nail clippers, and one of them lives in my personal. Yeah, that's kit. great. I, I really want to hear this. I, I want to hear about everybody's <laughs> nail clippers. No, <laughs> so seriously. There you go. <laughs> so, if it's okay with Shirley, I'm going to move on to Carl Ray's question. Is that okay, Shirley? I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry for stepping out of order. I, I just thought it might work a little bit better with a more in-depth question, but but that's okay. I'm glad you reined it in there. So let me go with Carl Ray here. He says, okay, I got a Senna, and that was a game changer for me. Aside from the communi communication aspects, I really enjoy listening to music. We've talked about that. Uh, many times songs become a soundtrack for a trip or ride. And then he, he goes on to, to mention about a, a certain song, which I'm not going to get into this one. But in any case, uh, he says, my question is, is a piece of music or is music a piece of kit on long trips or short? And is there a standout moment when music was a part of a trip? Oh, and also he says, what kind of music do you ride with? He says, uh, just guessing, Graham may like Pink Floyd, Rix's, ACDC, Sam, The Beatles, just guessing. Dot dot dot. That's Carl Ray. <laughs> We sort of talked mm, well, about about you know listening to music, and I, I think um, I, I think Sam, you said you're starting to now, aren't you? Yeah, I am. Um, 
it's really nice that Carl sent in this question because he's he's a, a long time listener for um, Adventure Rider Radio Raw. So um, yeah, thanks for the question. Um, yeah, do you know, um, I listen to music more now. Um, but I think in part that's down to the fact that um, the, the systems for listening to music are just that much better. Uh, we've got a, a Scala Rider packed up bold now and it works really well. Um, do I listen to it all of the time? No, I don't. Um, in part because I don't want to listen to it when the road conditions are busy and so on. On, on the long open road, I mean, on this trip that we've just been on, I was listening to it from time to time, but that was just when we were in the quieter back roads. Um, and he asked if um, there was a standout moment when music was part of a trip. And for me, absolutely, but not music that I've taken with me. Um, I think in every way you travel, you'll come across music in one form or another. And I like to be open to the music of the place where I am, because that's part of the big thing with memories, isn't it? It's it's not only the the sights and the the touch and the smells, but it's the sounds that you get involved with on a journey. And I've I, I got some examples of that. I never forget, never forget waking up the first morning in Ethiopia, having blagged our way across the border from Sudan. Um, absolutely knackered from the day's ride before having actually been thrown out of Sudan and waking up the next morning to the sound of a really catchy pop song um, filtering through the hazy morning sunshine and the eucalyptus trees and um, in this tiny little um, mud hut hotel that we'd ended up staying in. And that song stayed with us through the rest of the journey through Ethiopia. It was a really positive sound. Uh, it was one night um, in Kenya um, just over the border into Kenya and I've met some local lads and it started off as we were saying on uh, earlier on hey mister your motorcycle I like your motorcycle please give me your motorcycle how big is the engine where are you coming from and all of these sorts of things fantastic we got on so they invited me to go to the um, to the nightclub with them the vibrancy of the music in there was just full on it was almost like the walls were vibrating with the the sounds of this music just powering out and i haven't forgotten the musky smell there was floating through this um the, the darkness or this really flashing darkness and i was very much aware of the looks that i was getting from the local girls and then the guys telling me that they fancied me but of course i was extremely disappointed then to only find out that most of them were prostitutes but that's another story <laughs> um, Brian and Shirley you'll appreciate this one the first yes. trip I ever did to Australia um, walking through um, Paddington in Sydney and listening to the sounds of music coming out of a pub I thought wow this is fantastic so I went on into the pub and it was a band called Men at Work Oh, I yes, love yes, their yes. music. Yeah, yeah. And at the time, I thought, wow, these guys are going to make it big. And I tell you what, over the next years, music from them, wherever I was in the world, made me smile and it brought back the memories of the fun that I had in Sydney on that first trip. So music's important, isn't it? Music yeah. is important, yeah. We don't listen to ACDC, though. <laughs> <laughs> Look, sometimes I've been known to get into some nice twisty roads and I've actually put on Andrea Bocelli and listened to that beautiful music and from these great tenors, uh, singing these songs as you're riding through the twisty roads. And like um, like Sam says, deserted roads or semi-deserted roads are probably best when you're doing that sort of thing. 
Um, but we have had you know, and Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. I must say, we were we were coming back. With, this was a driving trip with the kids. Remember that, Shirley? I will never forget it, and I still can't <laughs> listen to that bloody album. <laughs> what? We were running across the eight planes. And it's, there's a, a, a fierce thunderstorm with lightning strikes and 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 sheet lightning going across everywhere. And there's these planes with just one tree in it that light up in the middle of the night as we're, we're cruising along. And the kids are playing Dark Side of the Moon. Again the- and again. <laughs> <laughs> but wow. Yeah, we did that. Yeah. And... I'm just trying to think of the tune. We were in Turkey and we had an earworm from one of those Turkey songs. Oh uh, yeah, I can't. It was on the uh, uh, it was on the Turkish pop charts in two thousand three uh, or two thousand four. You couldn't get away from it. But um, the singer that we listen to a lot, Jim, is Luca Bloom. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. The Luca, Irish, Irish singer. Irish folk singer. But um, also, we have been known to buy CDs. We've got. CDs in there, surely, of Indian music. Yeah. That night was actually one drink too many (laughs) because when you played the CD later, you thought, did we really like this rubbish that night? But we've got some really (laughs) fabulous um, music from South America, the Andean pipes and things like that, and that brings back lots of memories of our rides. Graham, you you are Pink Floyd, no doubt, ACDC. Hey, wait, wait a second, Sam. Are you the Beatles? <laughs> That's really interesting that Carl suggested that. I listen. I do listen to um, Hard Day's Night, and I sing that. That's one of the songs that I I sing in my crash helmet. But I'm more likely to be listening to people like Clapton and Dire Straits and Emerson, Lake and Palmer and UB40 and you know that bands like that. All great uh, bands. Okay, that's good. That's good. So, so Graham, so Pink Floyd for sure. ACD. I mean, we all know you're a Pink Floyd nut. You you follow him around like one of those creepy people who go to concerts and <laughs> and and, uh, and stalk them. But uh, then ACDC. Not like those creepy people. He is one of those creepy <laughs> people. <laughs> Graham, I think your trollism's being banged up on here. <laughs> Strangely, I was I had a dream that I was hanging out with Iron Maiden before I had to wake up and do the show this morning. So I had, uh, I had to stop hanging out with Bruce Dickinson and Steve Harris just to get up and do the show. <laughs> I was annoyed at my mate because I kept telling him, take a photo, take a photo, and he didn't have his phone with him. He didn't have his camera with him. So. Oh, that's when anyway, you know that was a dream. Yeah. Um, oh, I won't go into all the different music I listened to, but there was one very memorable experience. And again, we took uh, the dark side of the moon and I was in Turkey and I'd come over the crest of this hill and ahead of me was this long, flat, dull, parched, baking plain that I had to ride across. And I could see there was nothing ahead of me. There was no dangers as far as other traffic or hedges that animals could have jumped out of. And I thought, this is the time to put on some music. It doesn't matter if I'm a little bit distracted. And put on Dark Side of the Moon and was riding slowly as I was approaching this town. And it was just as the great gig of the sky and the howling vocals of Claire Tory was on as I came to a stop at this town to get some water. And as the engine noise slowed and the noise of the sound in my headphones became more defined and I took off my helmet and mixing with her vocals was the sound of a mosque. It was praying time. And it mixed perfectly. Wow. There was that wow. wonderful sound of 
for want of a better word, that wailing from a mosque, and which combined with Claire Torrey's sound, and it was just one of those magical moments that worked. <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah, cool. that would have been amazing. Grant? I'm, 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 it has to say, I'm a child of the 60s and 70s and 80s, and just listen to a mix. I've got hundreds of songs on my GPS and my Sena system so that I can listen to it. And at the appropriate time, like uh, Graham was saying, no traffic, nothing out there, long straight road, nothing to bother or distract me, then I'll turn it on and just let it cycle through all the great hits. And I'm, I'm not really that fussed about what it is. I listen to all of them. Uh, anything will do for me. Uh, but the only thing I can't stand is opera. Just can't handle opera. Oh, and I'm not a fan of rap. Uh, That's about it. With Otherwise, let things. it go. Yeah. Yeah, the rest of it, all good. It's all good music. It all brings back memories. You know, there's so many songs that brings back memories from so many different times and places. And, um, yeah, just let it, let it play. And, but I, I avoid it on twisty roads and distraction and in the city or anything like that. Forget it. Keep it clean, keep it clear, and keep my head straight and focused on what I'm doing. Going off subject a little bit, so not listening to rap, uh, I, I don't like a lot of it, but I kind of like Eminem. I like his wordsmith and the way he puts his words together. And I was looking for some music to play yesterday, just briefly, and put on YouTube. And rather than actually putting in some music I wanted to hear, it said trending. And uh, it was Eminem. He's got a new uh, song, Venom, it was called. And it had six, it's only been out for a week. He's had 67 million hits. And by the time it had finished playing, it had, had 69 million hits. Oh, and I just yeah. thought, wow. wouldn't we all wish we had that kind of hits on our website? <laughs> <laughs> he's coming to Melbourne and he's going to be playing at the MCG and they're saying it'll be a sellout. Well, that's 100,000 people at the MCG on that Hello Turf listening to some bloody rapper. <laughs> oh, he's good. <laughs> no, this is my opportunity to make an announcement, and that is that I'm changing my name to SM with the idea that we're going to get. Okay. Well, you know, both markets and all that. <laughs> no, she's too busy listening to Opera. No. <laughs> Noel Bowerman. Wrote in a question. It's um, what is the most memorable kindness shown to you by a stranger? I tell you what, Noel is um, an Aussie, and he's another long-term, uh, long-time listener to um, Adventure Rider Radio Raw. So and faithful yeah, good, follower on Facebook yeah. as well. He's always yeah. there, very supportive. Good to hear from you. Yeah, good guy. Um, well, maybe maybe I'll kick this off um, when we. Um, uh, broke our um, shock absorber in Canada and this lady pulled up and said, you can't camp here, this is full of bears, this is bear country and I will um, call up a road gang. She was part of the uh, Department of Roads in Canada and um, she she uh, took the back of her utility off the tailgate off laid it down and we used that as a ramp to push the bike up into the back of her ute and then drove us back 250 kilometres to the nearest town and then 
uh, put us up in a hotel, then came around and made sure that we uh, were doing things while we're in her town. That, to me, is just a wonderful, wonderful act of kindness by that person. And that's that's just one. I could think of others as well, but she was just fantastic. She was so friendly, um, and we experienced lots of things in Canada because of her because mm. she took us to um, a community and we met the totem maker. Making a totem. As he was carving a totem, which was really quite incredible. Wow. And then about oh, a year later, a mm. parcel turned up at home and it was um, carving. a carving that she had done which sits in our library on my bookshelf. It's just beautiful thing. It's great. The one I can remember that really stood out was uh, was a complete surprise. We were in Tunisia in some small town in the southern part of Tunisia. And we were kind of standing around looking. This, this is like a, a desert town. There's not much here. There's very little shops or anything. And this man came up to us and started talking to us in reasonable English. Um, just wondered what we were doing and what we, where we were going and why we were there and so forth. And we just kept talking to him and it turned out he was an English teacher in Tunisia. Um, and he invited us to his home to have dinner with him and his family. And we're kind of, this is really strange, but he was just so friendly and outgoing and welcoming that he made us feel very comfortable so we followed him and had a wonderful dinner with him and his family and that was that was a real experience you know a real cultural experience we had the whole thing completely natural non-touristy it was it was wonderful i think that was really strong was he was he a muslim man yeah yeah, because yeah. The, the the big thing with their religion is that you welcome um, tr- um, travellers into your house. Mm-hmm. Of course. It's, 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 it's a privilege to do that. Yes, and um, he actually did that, whereas most people, like everybody else, just ignored us. I mean, I remember in this town sitting down in a restaurant with Susan and wondering why we weren't getting any service. And there was other people coming and going. And we got no service, no service. And we finally clued in that Susan was the only female in the place. And they were in service. Uh, yeah. 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 We finally found out that there is a place that we could go to eat. And it was down this street, turn left and up the stairs that were marked with a little red dot and follow the stairs up to the top and knock on the door and they would let us in and we could have something to eat. The first time we were in Turkey, Grant, um, we mm. went to a restaurant where uh, the men um, ate on the main level and yep. the women and children ate upstairs, upstairs. upstairs or downstairs, yeah, upstairs. but, yeah, on a different on a different level. Yep, so, totally. um, yeah, that, that's in those days that was quite common. I don't know what it's like now. Yeah, well, it's, it's changing everywhere, of course, but this was 97 in Tunisia, but southern Tunisia. Northern Tunisia is very westernised. Um, but southern Tunisia was, I mean, we were the only tourists. There was no tourist infrastructure. Nobody ever went down there. There was just nothing. So it was, this was a real step out from the norm for the locals. Most of them just wouldn't even look at us. They just kind of, ooh, something very strange here. I don't want to have anything to do with you. But this guy was very friendly and outgoing, so I was very thankful to him for that. How about you, Sam? Oh, that's good. Oh, do you know you could actually write a book on on the kindnesses of people around the world, couldn't you? Um, people in this world are just awesome so much of the time. But I guess for me, the most powerful one has to be Captain Joseph. 
Um, he was a retired Tanzanian army captain and a subsistence farmer. And he walked 10 kilometres each day to interpret for me with the police and the courts when a man had stepped out in front of me and I couldn't miss him and I'd ended up in jail. He then um, put his farm up as bail for me. And this was a couple of small buildings, his field, his cow and his chickens. And his pension from the Tanzanian army was £20 sterling a year. So what's that? $28 a year. Um, and yeah, he just put everything up for me. And well, just, yeah. I tell you what, the hair on my arms has just risen just by saying that. The, the kindness got to me so much. That's incredible. Um, I mean, that's I that's his livelihood, his, his life. Wow, that's amazing. Do you still keep in contact with him, Sam? No, I don't. Um, he wow. was such an amazing help. Um, he ended up getting a job because of his help and the connections that he made through with me, getting a driver for um, the uh, British Embassy representative in the area. Oh, uh, of course. I, I bought <laughs> nice. him a cow. I bought him a cow to say thank you for um, everything that he had done for me. Um, it just seemed like the best sort of present that you could buy a man who had mm -hmm. one cow. Um, I remember once, Sam, after Motorcycle Live, I bought you a steak, but to buy someone a cow is excessive. <laughs> 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 no, but I think that's incredible. You know, like, you know, because people can get down on, on the world. I, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, and I know I'm making it, but, you know, there's something about, um, I, I think, humans in general, we are our automatic reactions. Like, in other words, you see somebody fall in the street, and I think in, in a lot of places, it's surprising how many people will instantly turn, like, automatically, it's a reaction action. They turn and they try and help that person. They don't really think about it, you know, and I think that sort of says something about the way people are. But Sam, I mean, a guy that puts up his his livelihood and his life to get you out of jail, I mean, I don't know what to say about that. That is, you know, above and beyond. Absolutely. I mean, this guy, just incredible. Um, but what you said about um, people rushing to help somebody who's taken a fall, that is the reality of humanity. And I get totally pissed off with the media constantly slagging people and humanity. And I get really angry about it. Oh, can you tell that the tone of my voice has changed? Mm -hmm. Because oh, yeah. people are great all the time. Um, and travel teaches people that it's very easy to forget it in modern society. But as soon as you hit the road and you're just meeting all of these constant people who are just fantastic. And I'm, I met um, a lady called Lee Harris, and she was one of the owners of the backpack hostel in Cape Town. And this was just after I'd had that 17 bone fracture accident and I was hurting and I needed a minimum of six weeks to, to get over this. And she saw me hobbling around and, you know, arm in a sling and hardly able to talk and all of the rest of it. And one after I'd been there for a few days, she said to me, Sam, you know, this is going to really hurt your travel budget. I tell you what, I've got a spare room in my house. You come and stay in that and you can come and stay for free. And this is somebody whose livelihood is is earning money from, you know, from travelers providing accommodation. And there she is giving up the room in her house. Um, and it's just so much kindness out in this world. Noel, what an awesome question to ask. Graham? Uh, now, uh, we knew we were having this question, and so I knew exactly what I was going to say. What we didn't know was that we were going to have the question about waving on motorbikes. So you kind of threw that in, and then I, I'm going to completely contradict myself now. <laughs> <laughs> I like this. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So, okay, we've all got wonderful examples of, of the kindness of strangers, homestays, um, someone looking around my bike a little bit too uh, attentively and then said to me, um, your tyres look quite worn. He said, I've got a pair of tyres at home that will fit your bike. Why don't you follow me? And then gave me a pair of tyres. So loads of examples of kindness and generosity and hospitality on the road. But I think one of the best things for me well, is when you're on the road, particularly when you travel alone, you can have some quite down days, you can be lonely, you can have various situations that play on your mind and your thoughts can be consumed with not necessarily like positive things. And I remember one in particular, but there are hundreds, where you ride around a corner and in Russia there was an old man sitting on a wall by a river and he looked up at me and he waved. And that just dispelled all the negativity in my helmet. A little thing like a wave from a local, from someone who's not bike orientated, can just change your day. And so I know this kind of contradicts about what we were saying earlier, but the wave, and, and again in Mongolia, oh, Kazakhstan, I remember where a, a guy sort of putting his fist up like, gusto, strength, yes. And, and little signs, little body languages, uh, I think are, are wonderful things. There's a sort of kindness, a support that without language, with just gesture, without stopping, without any other interaction, those little things just make you feel welcome in a country, make you feel at one with humanity and just change your day for the better. So that would be my example of human kindness. Mm. Don't you guys think that kindness is the most wonderful gift that you can give and receive? And what goes around comes around. Yeah. Karma, kismet, Karma, fate. yeah, whatever you want to call it. Yep. If... if um, you show kindness to others, it, it will come back and it'll come back in spades. Yep. Amen. Well, we are running tight on time now. We should get into some plugs before we finish up. Sam, what do you have for plugs? Oh, Jim, I wish you hadn't picked me first because I've got four. Okay, so let's get into plugs. And Grant, right. what do you have for plugs? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm at the Artini Resort. The owner, he's been very, very accommodating and helpful, uh, wonderful host, uh, Pak Koming. He owns the Artini Resort 1, 2, and 3, and it's, I can recommend it as a great place to stay. That's my main plug. Plus, of course, I always have more events. And coming up, as Brian and Shirley know, Australia Snowy Mountains is November 16 to 19. Make sure you get well, to that. Well, there goes our yeah. plug. Thanks, Meet Brian and Brian. Shirley. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, you're going to expand on it and tell them about it. I just got to say that it's... Where you go, Shirley. <laughs> the next one is Western Australia in April. The place to go is uh, horizonsunlimited.com forward slash events. So with that said, I'm going to move on to Graham. What do you have, Graham? Uh, a couple of little things. Um, I got. Uh, I did my first show uh, this year, my only show this year, the Cop Top Bike Show, which I was talking about in the last episode. Oh, yeah. How was that? Brilliant. Um, the weather was kind to us. Uh, so many people came to the stand. And, uh, and the recurring theme, which has been the recurring theme for the last three years, was when's the next book coming out? <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And I want to say one guy in particular, a guy called Kevin, who listens to Adventure Rider Radio, um, with the most encouraging and flattering words uh, about what he's read and what he wants to read. And it was a really wonderful thing. That's why I asked him his name. I know I'd seen him before, but I didn't know his name. So that was spectacular. 
And uh, and and as you lot all say, um, lots of people listen to Adventure Radio Radio because they don't get out much to shows and things. Um, I was unaware, and, and so many people listen to us, and uh, and and all, and also saying things that you know it's really important what you do. Don't doubt what you do, and um, uh, wonderful stuff to hear. So a uh, thank you. Um, and, and, and another thank you as well, in a way. Um, a couple of weeks ago, oh, I was really bored. It was the week of the Mariposa um, Horizons Unlimited show, which I was supposed to be at, and I wasn't there. And I was at home, and I was bored, and I'm not, I never get and bored. And you were missed, so Graham. Oh, I'm sorry, Grant. <laughs> so I'm not you wouldn't believe bored, the number so. of people that said, talk to Graham, and give, give Graham shit for not being here. Okay, consider myself <laughs> shitted. Um, so... Yes, <laughs> so... Um, so anyway, I didn't know what to do with myself, and uh, and uh, it's unusual that I'm, I'm bored. And so, in a very narcissistic way, narcissistic way, I um, looked at the reviews of the audio book. I didn't even know how many there were, and it was um, it was really wonderful to see how many people have bothered to uh, buy it and say how much they liked it. So I suppose that's not really a plug, is it? That's a thank you as well. So I don't really have a plug, just some thank yous. Uh, thank you for your support. Thank you for listening. Thank you for reading. Thank you for going to the website and glad you like what we do. That's about it, really. It takes a lot to go and do a review. I mean, think about how many times you do a review for something yourself. You know, you try something or you get something, you do review it. I think it takes a lot when people actually take their time out to send you an email or see at a show, for, for instance, or go online and, and write a review. It's great. And it certainly helps. There's, there's no doubt about it. It you know, helps immensely, yeah. yeah. We were talking about kindness just now, weren't we? And that's how I consider every review um, that somebody takes the time out to do. It's a real kindness. No, I, Unless I they slag off at the book. <laughs> then it's not a kindness. Yeah. Yeah, you can't no. say something nice. Don't say anything at all. Shirley and Brian, what do you guys have for plugs? Well, our plug was going to be the HU at um, Jindabyne in the Snowy Mountains on the 16th to 19th of November, where indeed, as Grant said, we will be there. There's interesting people coming from, travellers from all around the place are going to be there. Um, you'll be able to have an ear mould made, which I think is quite extraordinary. An um, ear mould? Yeah. yeah. Okay, ear mould. So that's for, to get a, an earbud piece. Yeah, yes. It's, yes, thanks, Grant. It's a technical thing. My eyes glaze over when things like <laughs> yeah, that I mean, happen. Because uh, why else would you get an ear mold, Shirley? I mean, think about it. Are you going to get that to put on your, your counter or something? It's just <laughs> Why not? <laughs> kind of like the get idea two, of that. And you could make them drop earrings. <laughs> there you yeah, people say, what is it? It's a talking <laughs> piece. <laughs> Shirley, that's a really funky idea. I like the sound of that. I must see if I can get some for Burger for Christmas. <laughs> oh, would you like me to get some? Think of someone that you'd like to have their ear shape and we could get them oh. made for you. It's Because <laughs> oh, yeah. Xander from Perth is coming over to do that. But the food at Jindabyne is awesome. The rides to get there are really good. Um, and uh, it's a fabulous venue and it'll be a great event. Plug over. I love that venue, though. It's just absolutely amazing. It is a great venue. And again, to find out about that, horizonsunlimited.com forward slash events. Correct. Got it. Sam Manicom, I understand <laughs> you might have more than one plug. Thank you for making the time for me. I will be very, very quick. Oh, time's up. So that wraps things up. <laughs> Job done. Great to you all. See you later. Bye. <laughs> Go ahead, Sam. Thanks, Jim. What, what, that's, that's really kind of you. <laughs> <laughs> the the first one that I want to do is um, for a friend who's called Dave Gurman, 
Um, ten years ago, he wrote a book called Caring Sharing Chronicles. Now, Dave has had a fascinating life um, within the world of motorcycling, and each of the chapters is a story about um, one form or another of motorcycling, how it affects humanity, how it's affected history in the UK and so on. Um, Dave is honest, he's funny, and he is almost never politically correct, which I love. Anyway, he's reissuing the book with um, a new cover, and that's just coming out um, on its 10th year anniversary. And I wanted to wish him every success with that. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm really glad that he's done it. Um, so that's plug one. Plug two, I want to wish everybody who is going to Overland Expo East between November the 9th and the 11th, um, just south of Asheville in North Carolina, an absolutely fantastic time. I'm really sorry I can't be there um, this year, but it clashes with um, what's happening as my next plug. Um, and that is Motorcycle Live, which is the UK's biggest motorcycle show, and that's on in mid-November. Um, I tell you what, this is my favourite of the UK motorcycle shows. And in part, it's just because it's a crossroads, you know, it's um, centre of England and people travel in from all over England, Wales, Scotland, fly in from Ireland and France and Belgium and Holland and Germany. And you just spend nine days talking motorcycles with people who are passionate about the things that you're passionate about. And I'm very, very lucky. I've been invited to guest book sign again this year with the Adventure Bike Shop. And um, we're in a different position this year. Um, we're in Hall 4, uh, which is a fantastic location because it's right on the outside um, walkway, or one of the three outside walkways of Hall 4, um, which means that it's going to be really easy to find. I'm going to have a range of other authors' books to sell. At the moment, I only know who two of those are going to be. And one of those is um, Hit the Road Jack by Jackie Furno. Jackie spent um, seven years um, traveling um, parts of the world on a Royal Enfield. And it's a, it's a lovely book. So signed copies of that. And there's um, a, a new book out called Rice and Dirt. And this is by um, a couple of Greeks whose surnames I cannot pronounce. So we'll just go with Alexandra and Sturgios. And they rode a scooter the length of Africa. And this story is just lovely. Um, the descriptions, um, absolutely magic, and they bring the journey, even the smells and how things feel alive. So they've done a, an absolutely cracking job with that book. I'm really looking forward to having copies of those. I have got a limited number, though, so people have to get to me fairly early. Um, and of course, I hate to do this, but I'd be daft if I didn't. Um, so I'm doing this for, um, for all of us. Um, and that is um, Christmas is coming soon. And we would all be very, very grateful if you would think about um, buying our books and DVDs and CDs and so on um, for presents for um, your friends and family and anybody that you can think of. We um, are, yeah, extremely grateful when you guys do that. So, and that's me. Thank you very much. If you could just hold off on the Aussies Overland one until November because we're going to be offering special price um, and trying to do some kind of deal on international postage. So okay, We've still got lots of the Achievable Dream DVD series available for prisons. The, the uh, box set is, is a very popular present that's gone over very well for years. And of course, it's also still all available on vimeo.com slash horizons unlimited. Okay. 
just had to throw that in. No, that's good. No, I think it's a great idea. Christmas is coming up, and uh, hey, if you you know if you already own them, you could always buy them for a potential motorcyclist. Nothing um, gets somebody more interested than reading it about somebody else's adventure. But that's great. Wow, great show. Thank you very much, everyone. I, I guess that wraps it up. And, and if we were going to do an after-show party, which, I mean, why not? Why, why don't we go to where Grant is and yeah. we can just sit by the beach? I, I actually am going to the beach after the show. I'm going to go to the beach with Paco Ming and some of the local people. And I don't know what's going to happen. They haven't told me yet, but I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> the party, here we are. Well, that wraps things up for this month's ARR Raw. And thanks to my co-host, Sam Manicom, who lives in the UK, has four books and audiobooks to follow his eight-year motorcycle journey around the world. Drop by his website, www.sam-manicom.com. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are from Australia. They also have books published about their motorcycle travels. You can buy them anywhere you get eBooks or from their website, www.aussiesoverland.com.au. Graham Field lives in Bulgaria and is the author of both books and audiobooks that chronicle some of his journeys, as well Graham's got t-shirts and his famous box set find out more www.gramfield.co.uk and of course grant johnson is from horizons unlimited which is literally the hub for the adventure motorcycling community horizons unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information as well as a huge forum connecting travelers from around the world they also put on the hub meets around the world you can see a list of all the meets they do at www.horizonsunlimited.com and we would love your support for raw and for adventure rider radio the more listener support we get the less we need to depend on advertising so drop by our website and consider becoming part of our patreon team www.adventureriderradio.com just click on the support button special thanks to our producer elizabeth martin my name's jim martin thank you for listening see you next month